Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrian, a host on New Books in, Hit- in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Priya Safia about her new book, Time's Monster, How History Makes History, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Welcome to the so- show, Priya. Thank you so much for having me on the show, John. Let's start by, if you don't mind, telling us a little bit about your past work. Specifically, it seems to me like your previous book uh, project catalyzed some of your thinking that produced this one. I mean, in a sense, it was sort of this realization I had after I had put that uh, previous book to bed. And I just sort of had this epiphany that I had missed something important in that book. Um, So to just briefly summarize, that book was about the Industrial Revolution, and the central figure was uh, the the biggest gunmaker in the 18th century, whose name was Samuel Galton, uh, biggest gunmaker in in Britain at the time, and he was Samuel Galton, and um, he was a Quaker. And so there was was this controversy in the 1790s um, where the Religious Society of Friends is asking him to, to stop being a gunmaker because it seems it seems to contradict you know his commitments as a Quaker, and it, you know he he defends himself and and that sort of opened a window for me onto the Industrial Revolution because he says well look it's a it's a you know this is um, whatever you do in industry at this time you're you're going to be doing something related to war and war is really what's driving the Industrial Revolution so that was the argument I made in the book and. You know, that that was a sort of a self-contained story to me about the Industrial Revolution. And then when I just thought a little bit harder about his words, the particular words he said, he said, I can't do anything else in the position in which providence has placed us. And that invocation of providence just sort of haunted me. So he was he's not saying, you know, that God is making me do anything. Um, he's saying that. Providence or God is, or some divine force is shaping the historical moment that he's operating in. And in this historical moment, war is the industrial game in town. And so his hands are are kind of tied by providence. So he's kind of saying, he's making an argument about history that gets him off the hook, you know, for his Quaker commitments, those ethical commitments and he's got to serve, he's sort of obligated to serve this this other higher, I guess, higher purpose because it's a providential history that's unfolding. So it's by definition, um, you know, higher in some sense. Right. And, and Yeah. So I use that as the starting point sort of for this new book to kind of think about you know, how 18th century people thought about history in, in this providential way and what that meant for the modern period. So in my reading, the book seeks to explain how historical consciousness and the discipline of history gave and gives shape to the project of imperialism. And I noticed that you frame a lot of what historical thinking 
did for imperial actors along the vectors of conscience, guilt, and agency. So I was just wondering if you could discuss those categories a bit, and I was also interested to hear how you even came to, to see those as sort of the salient um, things that stuck out when you were looking at this evidence. Yeah, thank you. Yes. So, I mean, everything I've done as a historian has been sort of um, in some way uh, preoccupied with questions of conscience. I think that's sort of uh, a big question that um, the British Empire forces upon a historian because it's it's the story of this liberty-loving uh, society going around and, and, and conquering other parts of the world and, and having to, to defend that and justify that, you know, uh, given their commitments to, to liberty and the, the rhetoric. Uh, around liberty that that always seeps into um, the, the the actual you know affairs of, of conquest and so so that that question is sort of thrust upon anyone who wants to understand the British Empire is that you know how did how did Britons manage their their consciences when they're doing this you know how did they manage the cognitive dissonance of that you know um, conquering other places in the name of spreading liberty and so from you know, from the beginning, since I was in grad school, I was always trying to understand how um, Britons who were you know really concerned with their consciences, who were always worrying about um, ethical matters, uh, how they reconciled the actual violence that imperialism entailed with deeply held, sincerely held um, ethical scruples. So that's been a consistent um, interest of mine as a historian. And I noticed it, you know, there's this pattern. I had this book about these, these um, middle, you know, British experts on the Middle East who, who are always uh, talking about their, you know, how much they loved the Middle East as a place, as a region. And yet they become the architects of this very violent aerial control regime in the region between the two world wars. And so that was a book about, you know, how did they, again, defend that violence given um, their uh, professed love for this region. And then I had this book on this Quaker gunmaker. Again, that's there's a question of conscience there. And then I was looking at the violence of um, decolonization in South Asia and how that sat with, you know, on people's um, consciences. So there was this pattern of inquiry. And I, what, what came to me with that epiphany I described earlier was that a lot of the people I'm looking at were people who were thinking with history and um, that so often there's a pattern of, of Britons who are making the key decisions about empire, um, confessing moral qualms, you know, in diaries or in letters to their moms, <laughs> spaces like literary spaces like that, but then always sort of rationalizing away those concerns by saying, but I have to serve history. And so then I started looking at, okay, well, what was the uh, understanding of history that emerged in the 18th century? Um, that that made them think that way. And so then I wound up writing this book that traced the emergence of this particular understanding of history as providential, how that influenced decision-making in the modern period, and then how that that understanding of history really changed um, in, by the middle of the 20th century because of uh, anti-colonial um, and anti-racist kind of questioning of, of, of the way it had been operating until that point. And so that today we have... You know, we're sort of reckoning once again with what history is for and um, what the public role of historians is. So that's sort of where I end up in the book. Yeah, and your response, it, it 
leads me to a question that I just kind of had as I was reading, and it, it might be, I mean, it, it is overly broad, so if you can't uh, answer it all now, I totally understand, but a lot of what the actors in the book are doing, as you sort of alluded to, is this sort of um, grappling with their own duality right there. On the one hand, they have these moral beliefs that should militate against an imperial perspective, but on the other hand, they're committed to the project of imperialism and its violence. And yeah, I was just wondering, do you have a view maybe on the extent to which a an abhorrence of violence is a sort of innate human characteristic uh, that that people who are engaged in violent projects always have to find ways to react against? Or is that sort of underlying dislike of violence something that is itself culturally constructed and therefore not universal? I mean, I think there's enough evidence if we just look at um, the way, you know, even in ancient myth, um, there's there are always sort of ethical questions around violence. Like it does kind of automatically raise um, ethical questions. I think humans have understood violence that way. But I think what's uh, sort of very specific to um, the kind of violence I'm talking about in the modern period is that we're talking about um not violence that's sort of most of the time it's 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 sort of violence one at a distance and two it's violence that's sort of not the you know violence that occurs in a moment of fury and sort of very emotionally motivated which I think a lot of cultures tend to be much more forgiving about um, as sort of the part of the human condition but um, violence that's that's much more instrumental for to serve some some historical end. Right, that's defended in those terms. So, um, you know, and and war in particular, I think, is something that um, you can you can find different uh, ways of thinking about the ethical status of war. You know, over time, and you definitely see in the 18th century this like fresh grappling with it. Well, it's not how I behave in war. That's not what they're thinking about. You know, the ethics of of um, like military ethics, or um, you know, how what what is real chivalry or What's a true warrior? Those kinds of questions, which appear in you know um, other cultural forms, but but in this moment they're really thinking about well, is war something that is ethical in and of itself? Like, is that a good way for um, human progress to occur? Can can humans progress through war, given all the devastation that war tends to seems to entail? That's what they're asking about. And on the one hand, you know, we, we, we associate thinkers of Adam Smith, like thinkers like Adam Smith with the idea that, um, you know, um, peace is the, is the true context for human progress. But if you look closely at 18th century thinkers, many of them, including actually Adam Smith, are saying that at times the only way to advance is through war. And we have to sort of trust that providence is behind that and that, um, it's a necessary evil in a sense. That was the phrase they would use, and that um, ultimately it would lead to something better afterwards. So you sort of have to suspend your judgment and trust in the higher power guiding history and the unfolding of human events. Does that sort of answer your question? It does, yeah, and it actually segues perfectly into my next question, and, and you touched on it a bit there, but I was wondering if you maybe could dig a little uh um, a little deeper and maybe bring some other thinkers like, you know, Priestley 
and talk a bit about how, yeah, this enlightenment belief in progressive time and the redemptive work of history helped to catalyze imperialism in this period. Yeah, so what you see, so until about the middle of the 18th century, history is basically understood as sort of a narrative of events. It doesn't need to have a moral purpose. Um, you don't study history to, to become a virtuous person before the middle of the 18th century. And then that suddenly changes. In the second half of the 18th century, increasingly you find Enlightenment philosophers sort of um, quite excited about the idea that history is really um, prime terrain for moral philosophy and moral education of young men, uh, especially young men with um, political ambitions. And that if you just um, have, um, uh, you know, aspiring great men study the lives and actions of earlier generations of great people, great lives, they will learn from their example and they will become aware of the fact that of history's, you know, future judgment of their own actions and that will make them behave in a certain way as well. So it's sort of like you're being watched by the future and to, to inculcate an awareness of that, a consciousness of being watched by the future, sort of how, you know, in, um, in the Hamilton uh, musical, right, there's a song, History Has Its Eyes on You. That idea where Washington is telling Hamilton, History Has Its Eyes on You, he's trying to remind him, look, think about how you act because history has its eyes on you. And, and I think what happens with this new idea of history in the 18th century is that um, increasingly then it, there's this idea that um, there's a, so there, there can be a different moral standard for the great, uh, for great men, especially, and uh, that great men um, forward human progress, and that sometimes terrible things will happen, there will be necessary evils, and you need to trust that um, that some divine power is exercising providential care, and that in the end, uh, we will we will wind up in, in some kind of uh, ideal world. So, you know, this is like the German philosopher Kant, right? Immanuel Kant this, has this essay, which is sort of expressing his philosophy of history, and it's called the, the, the idea of a universal history. And, and his intention in putting out that philosophy is that uh, people will read it, think and think history works this way, and then fulfill the very philosophy that he's, that he's proposing. So it's, a, it's also a new idea of philosophy itself, that philosophy exists to influence not just thought, but action and the actual unfolding of history. And you see that really come true, to find, kind of fully come true with Karl Marx and his, his take on philosophy. So, so in the British context, especially, um, you have thinkers like, you know, Adam Smith, and then, you know, um, Joseph Priestley comes up in the book too, um, really um, thinking about um, history in a new way and um, very explicitly um, putting it forward as a form of ethical training in a new way and um, something that should guide um, understanding of the events that are going on right then that are leading to Britain becoming this incredibly powerful um, imperial force around the world. The second half of the 18th century is the time when Britain becomes this uh, um, global imperial force conquering um, in South Asia and, and other areas around the world. Yeah, and I mean, what what's so fascinating is even this understanding of history 
is itself something that is constructed through the practice of history, right? Because this is totally a revival of the Roman conception of history, right? The like idea of it being driven by great men, certain forms of semi-divine control in the form of, you know, fortuna or something like that. Um, and the idea that it serves as a repository for uh, ethical examples. And, and this is being resuscitated because of the practice of history looking at its own past in, in, you know, classical antiquity. So it's just super interesting to me the extent to which all of this kind of history and historiography is extremely constructed and sort of self-constructed, right? Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting way you put it. Yeah, it's, it's it's because what's happening in this period is that, like with all Enlightenment thought, there is this kind of attempt to connect back to um, the works of classical antiquity, and I think. I mean, I don't talk about Roman, um, classical Roman uh, examples in the book, but I do talk about Thucydides and, and uh, Herodotus and their influence on um, uh, British uh, philosophers and historians in, in the 18th century. And really, you know, it's, you know, Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian Wars is, is, is all about this. That's the first text in which um, God does not intervene directly in human events. Um, and there is the sense that only time will tell which which side um, only time can will vind, will vindicate one of these two sides Athens or Sparta in this contest. Um, you can't tell just by looking at the qualities of of those two um, players. You know who who should be vindicated. History is going to judge, right? And so I think they really um, they really sort of. Um, uh, adopt this idea in the 18th century um, Enlightenment philosophers, and and um, and that becomes sort of the their approach to history. But between classical antiquity and the Enlightenment era, there are many other understandings of you know how human uh, events unfold. You know, is it cyclical? Is it the time tells? Is it uh, you know, it, 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 there isn't just a, a very obvious, direct, uh, you know, uh, line of thought. It's just the particular um, play that some of these classical texts got among uh, philosophers in the Enlightenment era that shaped things in that direction, I think. It didn't have to be that way, you know. Right, and it might be an interesting time to talk a little bit about those sort of... Um, yeah, past visions of history and how they become sort of uh, morphed into somewhat more secular visions that we see in the Enlightenment in the period under your um, under consideration in your book. And if we were to start, for example, with somebody like Eusebius or St. Augustine, what they really give us, um, what they give posterity is organizing historical narratives around what you might call salvational or eschatological time, right? And mm-hmm. And providence plays a huge role in this sort of uh, judge that looms both above and within that narrative linear eschatological time. And as you document in the book, this underlying kind of eschatological time, it is transmutated into something more secular, but even in the most secularized or materialist visions of history that um, come to proliferate in this period, 
you can really see the the residue of that older heritage uh, lurking beneath um, pretty consistently, if I'm summarizing that accurately. Yes, absolutely. That, um, that this idea of future vindication is, is a secular secularization or an attempt at <laughs> secularizing uh, eschatological, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, or you could say broadly Abrahamic ideas of you know the Day of Judgment. Um, uh, and 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 Kant is very clear that um, we need to have this kind of secular version. Uh, of the story, because otherwise we'll, we'll, we just see how we see the human condition. We see how, you know, miserable and idiotic humans can be. And we will, we will think that there's only hope for meaning uh, in the afterlife. And we will not even have any hope for meaning in um, events in our own time on this earth, in worldly life. And so he's sort of offering his philosophy as a way out of that, as a way to just hope to find meaning um in the world while, while, while one is in the world. Um, so in that, in his case, it's a very, very deliberate, very um, conscious secularization of, of um, that understanding of, of that kind of eschatological vision. Yeah, it seems to me that there's something very ironic that happens with the secularization because, you know, in the eschatological, as you say, Abrahamic vision, where the sort of ultimate endpoint is this day of judgment, what that fosters is an intense ethical concern for your own behavior in the present relative to this sort of ultimate end time when you will be judged. But what you what you see a lot of your actors doing is basically flipping that on its head, right? It's this, well, you know, we, we can't possibly be judged for our behavior now because only that final judgment will elucidate all of the things that we've done. I, I mean, to, I don't know if you get sort of what I'm saying, but it, it really is. A, it's, yeah, it's very bizarre, isn't it? I mean, it's, very, it's very ironic. It's, it's, it's actually quite tragic. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it in, is, yeah. In the actual religious vision of these of Abrahamic traditions, you know what's right and wrong in the moment itself. You know right now if what you're doing is right or wrong. But, you know, the punishment or the reward for it may come much later on the Day of Judgment, right? But in the secular version of this that these Enlightenment philosophers popularize, they're thinking it, it sort of temporalizes judgment altogether. Like, you can't know sometimes or sometimes things that seem bad, you have to trust they aren't because um, only time can tell, right? And and that, yeah, it sort of put, turns ethics on its head in terms of, you know, um, um, ta- almost re- taking away our capacity to judge in the moment um, because history is something bigger, right? So, and, and, and our, our vision and our understanding of ourselves and our actions is too small. Right. And and maybe one thing that does persist between the two kind of visions of time is, as you document in the book, there's an intense concern in enlightenment thought with intention, right? Like yeah. a man could really only be judged if he was ill-intentioned and history as a providential force helped mitigate his culpability um, in this light. So how did intention come to serve this function and how in turn did Enlightenment historiography co-opt this into the service of empire? Yeah, I mean, it's really important idea in um, especially British um, 
Enlightenment philosophy. Uh, you can see this with David Hume, who is, you know, probably one of the most secular thinkers in this period. And, you know, it, it's this idea of in, in, intention really determines your moral responsibility for, for any action. Um, and again, it's because you can't know the consequence always of your actions. So as long as your intention is good, that's what matters. And we can see how um, this could set you up for all kinds of, um, you know, questioning of your normal, your everyday kind of ethical instincts in the moment. Um, you could you can justify a lot of things by saying that my intentions were good. And so along with this idea that intentions determine the justness of your actions, there's also a suspicion of that. And this, you know, in the 19th century is around when you get this, you know, this um, proverb or phrase, you know, that uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, which is, which is a way of saying in English, you know, by the British that um, we know actually that the protesting good intentions is not, is not good enough. There's always a lingering doubt and suspicion about this enlightenment way of thinking about ethics, right? So there's always dissent, um, even in the period of the enlightenment itself. You can see that with the romantic thinkers, for instance. Um, and so, so, but, but it's, but it's still very influential throughout the period. And even today, though, we know history is not a narrative of progress. Still, the popular influence of that, of that idea is, is very, very strong. Now, in the first half of the 18th century, as you describe in the book, there is in these sort of imperial, historiographical apologetics, this, uh, I guess, concern with or emphasis on the original sin of empire, that the future of empire sort of has to, um, you know, atone for through its good works or something like that. So, can you describe a little bit about what they sort of thought this original sin was and, and how they used history to, um, to, to kind of dissect it and, and atone for it? Sure. Yes. Right when there's this, um, all this you know, intellectual ferment around um, moral philosophy in the 18th century, I mean, part of what's driving it is that there's a sense of widespread um, scandal in British um interaction with the world. Um, so one of those things is, of course, the conversation about the slave trade um, and the abolition movement that becomes um, really influential and gains a lot of traction from the 1780s um, is in the background of these conversations. So is the fact that Britain has made its first territorial conquest in India. And um, it's really clear that there's nothing... Um, morally redeeming about what they're doing in India. People are coming back with tons of loot. Uh, there are famines in India. It's really clear that the British are there as totally um, rapacious, cruel um, uh, conquerors. Um, and there, there's no redeeming quality to what they're doing. Um, and so these are some of the scandals, uh, you can say, that um, are being aired and then, of course, there is a huge defeat against the American colonists with the Revolutionary War in 1783. And that also sets off a lot of kind of soul searching. And so as the British are dealing with all these scandals and questions, and there's a really long impeachment trial of the 
governor general um, in, of India, um, who's sort of blamed for all the corruption that the British are engaging in over there. Um, that's going on as well in the 1780s and 90s. Um, and then you've got to remember that the French Revolution is also happening in the background, and that's also forcing a lot of questioning. But what the British decide is that, yes, the, the original, the kind of the, their original footsteps into India and their original um, activity in the slave trade were really, really morally questionable. And so what they decide by the early 19th century is that to atone for those missteps, for those moral um, crimes, they need to um, redeem themselves and, and redeem their presence in India. So, and, and the way to do that is not to leave India, but to... Um, be a really um, constructive or civilizing or reforming presence in India to sort of make good on their earlier bad behavior. And similarly with abolition, the way to atone for that is, you know, not to just stay out of West Africa, but to try and exercise this kind of policing uh, presence there so that um, they can really fully stop the slave trade. And of course, that sucks them into greater and greater political involvement in West Africa. So you get the expansion of empire um, as the result of trying to atone for earlier for earlier empire, in a sense. It's very paradoxical. Yeah, it it, it is, and uh, sort of along those lines, maybe one um, concept that animates a lot of this book is, and not coincidentally, right, because this is also the period when liberalism uh, is emerging, and you know that's very topical because liberalism is big part of our conversation today, but uh, you you document the the workings of what you call liberal imperialism. So I'm wondering if you could describe for listeners this, the sort of basic tenets of liberal imperialism. Yes, yeah, sure. So this this um, this idea um, about atoning, you know, for early, for earlier sort of um, morally bankrupt empire and, and doing a new kind of empire, what, what I mean by the new kind is, is this this thing we call liberal imperialism, which is that the British are um, expanding their influence and power around the world in the 19th century and 20th century. And they're doing so uh, as part of a civilizing mission, in a sense, that they're doing it to free people from their uh, existing um, truly despotic forms of government. Um, and that uh, the British, British colonial world can can only be an improvement on whatever um, indigenous uh, despotic form of rule they might have. Um, and, and so you see, you know, different versions of that at different times in the 19th century. I mean, they have to keep sort of um, fine-tuning exactly what they mean by that as um, resistance to the British presence continues and forces that continual reconsideration. Um, but it's this idea that, you know, conquering in the name of spreading liberty um, that that is what liberal imperialism is about, and it's a it's a particularly British version of um, European colonialism in the the modern period. Yeah, and it, it ties into some broader, maybe even pan-European um, theories of stadial or civilizational development uh, that rope in a lot of the tenets of um, Orientalism. You know that that framing that was really pioneered and, and lucidly elaborated by people like Edward Said and stuff. And, and you see this in the, the work of Hegel, for example, this idea of sort of sultry, decadent, lazy, 
Eastern despots um, being driven out by the force of liberty coming from the West. Um, yeah, so could you talk a little bit about the way that both these kind of civilizational stadial theories of history um, and then the broader currents of Orientalism are influencing the ways that British thinkers are engaging with the project of an Eastern empire. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I should have said that yeah, liberal imperialism, insofar as it's the presumption is that the British are always bringing some better form of rule, um, however colonial it is. I mean, that's, it, it, that's based, I mean, the, the premise of the whole thing um, is, is kind of a, the presumption of superior British culture and, and, and the British as a superior race as well. And so that's kind of built into um, this understanding of empire from the beginning. And, and the whole project is deeply historical, right? And so far, it's about um, improving things, in, you know, over time, right? The, there's a, the time dimension to the whole story is really important. Because um, along the way, the British, I mean, they're very aware that they may have to be destructive, um, in the course of bringing improvement and uplift and development, I guess that's the more contemporary word we would use. Um, and so, and so that's again this idea of necessary evils may may need to be tolerated or endured um, in the course of bringing improvement. And and for sure, it rests on this um, starting presumption that um, you know all of history is kind of a contest between civilization and barbarity and the British are the bearers of civilization. And this is something, um, it's a deeply kind of racial and, um, it's a deeply racist and uh, racialized, um, understanding of, of the world, um, with the British at the top and other places in the world are in different ways, you know, like further back in time, they're not just different places. They're in, they're in different periods of history. And so the British are sort of the handmaiden of history that way. They've come to bring progress that will not otherwise come because Indians or Africans or Asians are just not um, capable of making history. They don't have historical agency, and that's why they need the British to make history for them. And again, you see this, as you mentioned, in the work of a philosopher like Hegel too, who who said, you know, um, history moves from from the West to to every other place. Um, that that was his kind of that's the fundamental premise of of modern his, historicism. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about the book is you do a lot of, I guess you could say, maybe like peeking under the hood of uh, a lot of different theorists and and philosophers and, and just people who discuss empire. And what you find is that a lot of these more insidious, older visions of empire or history or sort of Western colonial behavior really persist um, into movements and ideas that would seem at first blush antithetical to them. And one of the, the currents for which this is most true is that of romanticism. Um, and the romantics have a really big role in your story. Um, their vision of heroism and of history was, as I said, really influential, even in those moments that seem most antithetical to them. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that statement, but it's definitely sort of what I came away with. 
Yeah, the romantics are fascinating because they're they're really um, the guilt is very very uh, explicit in a lot of romantic works. Whether you look at Frankenstein, right, and that's the the title of the book is a, a play on on that novel, right, Time's Monster. So I mean, Frankenstein is is a fable of of guilt, um, enlightenment guilt, right, and the romantics are basically expressing um, guilt about um, the the lack of humility, right, that goes into um, the enlightenment attitude to the towards the world. This idea that we can remake the world according to rational principles, and the romantics are trying to express the folly of that. And so they're really good at you know if you think about um, you know Coleridge's um, poetry, like the rhyme of the ancient mariner, or if you think about the story of Faust, Doctor Faustus. I mean, these are all tales of guilty conscience. Um, and they play on sort of Christian notions of original sin too, but they're also just addressing their contemporary philosophical um, context and, and historical context and things that are going on. So you see people like um, the poet Lord Byron, who feels terrible about the expansion of British power into the Mediterranean and the way they've taken the, the marbles from the Parthenon, which are still now on display in the British Museum today. And, and he feels terrible about this, and he wants to atone for this British sin. And so he joins the Greek struggle to um, get uh, freedom from from the Ottoman Empire, because Greece was ruled um, was part of the Ottoman Empire until the 1820s. And so he dies in the course of, of trying to help the Greeks, and he becomes a great hero, this tragic hero for the Greek cause, is celebrated in Greece and also in Britain. And again, you have this ironic turn of events where the idea of the great man, um, the great British man with, you know, all that, with all his aristocratic uh, pretension too, sort of out in the world, um, bringing liberty to other people. And just as with, you know, the story of, you know, the abolition of the slave trade, this idea that whatever the British are doing in the world, even when it means they're getting greater power, um, greater influence, um, um, subjugating other people that somehow ultimately this will turn into a story of liberty, right? So there's a kind of co-opting of the romantic critique of imperialism into uh, the further spread of imperialism. Um, and there's a kind of, you know, that's the tragic quality of, of liberal imperialism that some figures at least are very aware of that, you know, we know we know that uh, we lack humility. We know we are um, being oppressive, and yet we are sort of obliged to do this, obliged by history. It's our moral burden to bear to sort of martyr ourselves for the cause of history. Um, and that's in tension with a much more sort of unapologetic, jingoistic attitude towards empire, which I guess you could think of someone like Winston Churchill really epitomizing that version of, you know, where Britain is, is fulfilling a historic destiny, that kind of thinking. But there's always this guilty side, and I think the romantics really help provide the kind of symbols and the, um, the heroes and the vocabulary to express that. Mm, yeah, and uh, one development that happens, I, I, I guess you could say maybe that kind of sheds most pretenses to uh, guilty consciences is really in the second half of the 19th century um, that is a concomitant to these more 
newer scientific theories about race, about human difference and evolution that challenged the sort of universality of human traits um, and therefore opened up the door to the suggestion that some peoples may constitutionally be unable to attain the level of civilizations and civility of Europeans. And this, as you document, shifted some European thinking and conscience with respect to the history of imperialism. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, so when we were talking about liberal imperialism earlier, there are different versions of it. So for the first half of the 19th century, this there is a kind of universalism to it. There is this kind of idea that, um, yes, different cultures and different races are at different levels of, of development, let's say, civilizational development, but ultimately we, they can all end up like us, like the British, right? Um, and then there's, there's so much resistance and there are these massive rebellions against British rule in different parts of the empire. That um, And then there's also the emergence of um, race science basically by the middle of the 19th century. And so then after that point, you really see a lot more pessimism about that universalistic um, uh, teleology. And instead this idea that, well, you know, um, they may not all be able to become British because certain races just aren't capable of that level of um, civilization. And so in, for, in that case, then the British need to be sort of uh, in loco parentis, just around um, protecting these people against their own uh, worst natures, right? Really to, to kind of hold back anarchy or um, kind of protect, protect, uh, protect people from themselves, right? Um, uh, and, and the, you know, maybe the horizon of freedom, maybe the time at which they'll be capable of self-government is just really, really far in the future. Um, and so, again, there is a sense of Britain's moral burden to bear the white man's burden. Um, that poem comes out in that period, Kipling's poem. Um, you know, that, that this is um, what we have to do because there's really no other way Um um, for the world to, to operate in a non-anarchic uh, way. <laughs> and, uh, uh, additionally, uh, sort of at the uh, same time in the, in the later 19th century, spurred, um, I think, largely by the Industrial Revolution, there are these new notions of time that come to the fore, one that, that seem hollow or mechanical, um, repulsive to the more Byronic kind of Englishmen. Um, and, and these folks look towards the Middle East for alter, alternate visions of time and space. Can you elaborate on the time that they confronted at home and how the Middle East in their imaginary seemed to rebuff that kind of time? Yeah, sure. So as I said, there is this um, uh, new race science, right? And uh, in the second half of the 19th century, and that's part of, it's, it's tied up with the Darwinian Revolution, and the Darwinian Revolution also sort of messes with people's sense of geological time. Um, that's it's really disorienting for people who lived in, lived in that time. Um, they had a sense of a, a timeline of history that you know was shaped by the Bible um, and uh, a, a, a sense of you know human history being that long. Um, and then you've got this very different time scale with the um, scientific discoveries of the, the second half of the 19th century um, and and uh, infinite time scales, right? Uh, 
in terms of you know the history of the planet and the history of of life and the history of humanity and the human race. And that's very disorienting for people. Um, at the same time, there is such an imposition of time discipline um, with the rise of capitalism and industrialism, as you mentioned. Um, you know, the way factories work, the way newspapers show up every day at the same time and give a sense of standardization of time and of experience, the way railways work. Um, so there are these, these, these different sort of pressures on people's uh, experience of time. And you see this come out in a, in, among uh, especially certain elite uh, British circles where they, they're sort of longing for uh, a different sense of time, a lost sense of time. Uh, a more of a sense of the fullness of time, of having access to um, having a less regimented sense of time, something that you can't uh, kind of clock out um, and count out and in whether in a history book or uh, in a factory uh, as sort of year after year, uh, uniform, uh, homogeneous sense of time. They are longing for an escape from that. Um, and they're longing for a sense of, rootedness um, in geological time that's been sort of destabilized by the Darwinian revolution. And what you find is that archaeologists are starting to dig up um, sites of antiquity in the Middle East, and that's all part of the kind of German and British race for influence within the Ottoman Empire as you get to the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. And so um, there's this there's this real um, interest in occultism, and spiritualism of different kinds and just um, connecting uh, with pre-Christian traditions um, and also getting a better sense of Christian tradition by, by, by connecting with the actual sites of biblical events that are in the Middle East, right? You could actually go to Babylon, for instance, or go to Palestine. And they're doing that and they're um, getting increasingly sort of fascinated by the Middle East because of some of these um, cultural um, shifts that are occurring, you know, within 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 Britain, within British culture itself, um, and so you see there are there are very very um, strong consequences to this within the Middle East itself, as the British then finally conquer the region during World War One, and their sense of this place being sort of out of um, out of time, out of worldly time. And sort of on a myth- mythological timescale, a place of myth that's not not historical in the same sense that the other parts of the world are, um, that really licenses them to behave in a very different way in the Middle East than they do, um, you know, at home or in even other parts of the empire. And so um, I have a chapter in this book that explains the consequences of that, uh, namely in the form of this very violent regime of aerial policing that the British invent in the Middle East and then um, apply in, in other parts of the empire too. Um, yeah, and I was actually going to ask you a little bit about that. So um, I don't know if you if you would want to maybe um, describe what that aerial regime kind of was uh, in interwar Iraq for listeners who are kind of less familiar with it because it really is, um, it's illuminating and also pretty shocking. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, 
how little known <laughs> this story is even today. But basically, there was this kind of romanticization of the desert, right? And this idea that the Middle East is all desert, which of course it's not. And even where it's a desert, there are different kinds of deserts, right? Uh, but in any sense, there is this, the British do romanticize it as this desert land that's sort of ideal uh, for being watched from the sky and, you know, air power is being developed right around World War One, and it really comes into its own for the British um, in the Middle East, much more so than in Europe. It's used for all kinds of military purposes in the Middle East to a much greater extent than it is anywhere else in that war. And so after the war, when, um, you know, most of um, Britain just wanted the war to end and their, their, their men to come home and reconstruction to begin at Britain, um, the, the British Empire has expanded dramatically in the Middle East and they have to figure out a way to hold on to it um, without, without kind of disrupting that reconstruction work at home. And so they decide that a cheap way and a discreet way of holding on to the Middle East in a time when there are, there's a lot of anti-colonial sentiment around the world and from their American allies, um, they decide that air control, um, holding the Middle East from the air was, was going to be the best option um, because it's much more discreet than having boots on the ground and cheaper as well. And so, and also sort of, you know, going with the romance of the desert that, you know, there's a romance of the sky that's just really um, a fitting counterpart um, to to a, a, a desert space. And so um, what basically they, they lay out, um, you know, I think about nine uh, air bases across uh, the space we now call that makes up in today's um, nation state of Iraq. And um, those are three former provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And um, the British aircraft are um, flying above that area um, constantly. Um, and the idea is it's a regime of terror. Um, terror is the word that the British use to describe what they're doing there. And the idea is that once um, the people, Iraqis on the ground, see these aircraft constantly patrolling, they will not rebel. They will pay their taxes. And if they don't pay their taxes and the taxes are set at a very high rate, higher than um, under Ottoman rule, um, and right out coming out, out of a war, um, then they will be bombed. And even if they bomb the wrong village or the wrong tribe, that's okay, because um, it's sort of exemplary violence that will send a signal to everybody else. So this regime was continually resisted by people who lived there, uh, by Iraqis. Um, but nevertheless, um, the, uh, the British... Uh, there, there's a lot of control of information about it. There's a lot of secrecy about it. Um, and so there's a sort of myth of it being successful that allows it to be copied in other parts of the British Empire. So in British Somaliland, on the northwest frontier of India, in Palestine, and so on. All the very same places where today, not by coincidence, um, uh, we use um, drone surveillance in the very same parts of the world as part of the war on terror. So there's a sort of long legacy to the British aerial experiment in the Middle East. Speaking of long legacies of colonialism, in your fifth chapter, you look at uh, the decolonization of India and um, of partition. So just going to ask you a couple of questions about that, because I found that chapter to be absolutely fascinating. Um, the first would be I was um, very taken by the sort of, again, another irony in this book, the way that the British were able to imagine decolonization as, in fact, further fulfillment 
of liberal imperialism. Um, so that's one that I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about. And then also the colonial origins of partition itself, right? And because you describe the ways in which, you know, colonialism, it was colonialism that fostered this enmity and uh, irrevocable violence between Hindus and Muslims that led to the partition of India into um, India and Pakistan. Yeah, so um, um, the first question, um, how was sort of decolonization camouflaged <laughs> for yes, the British? Yeah. Um, another moment in the continually evolving story of liberal empire. So the British already had a habit, even before 1947 and Indian independence, of granting formal independence to colonies as a sort of um, tactic of political appeasement. So, you know, they unilaterally declared Egypt independent. Uh, they they unilaterally, unilaterally declared Iraq independent in 1932, but it didn't mean anything. I mean, they stay on in Iraq until the revolution of 1958, and of course they stay on in Egypt until the Suez crisis of 1956. So it's sort of this nominal independence being granted um, for political purposes with the idea that it's just uh, appeasing um, anti-colonial uh, activists so that they can actually maintain the same bond in substance. And there have always been various kinds of informal empire and indirect rule so, you know, so that the British can exercise influence where more formal and direct rule is sort of politically too difficult to do. Um, so there's already been a pattern of that, and there was no reason for the British not to think that the granting of Indian independence in 1947 would not would not be of a similar kind. And this is what um, uh, Indian independence um, leaders were, were really worried about. Um, they wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a nominal granting of independence. And the fact that there's this commonwealth body as well in which the kind of white dominion colonies um, of Britain have already joined um, from the 1930s, you know, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and so on. Um, and, it, and it's clear that India and, and Pakistan are both going to join that. Um, that also gives Britons a sense of continuity and the, uh, this reassurance that nothing really has to change in substance uh, despite this turning point. So it takes time uh, for it to become clear um, whether India and Pakistan actually are independent countries, and if they are independent, then how independent? Um, so it's really hard to actually, you know, pinpoint when empire ends, and in many ways it, it doesn't, right? And that's why we have these ongoing conversations today about reparations and apologies and memorialization and so on. Um, as to your other question about the colonial origins of the the, the rift uh, between Hindus and Muslims that led to partition and the fact that Indian independence took the form of um, the independence of two rather than a single new nation. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's really important to, you know, it's, it, it's sort of a very common fallacy to say that, um, you know, partition was the result of Hindu, sort of the eternal hatreds of Hindus and Muslims or you know, the problems in Palestine and Israel are about the eternal hatreds of Jews and Muslims, or the, the problems in Ireland are about the eternal hatreds of Protestants and Catholics. I mean, this is all belied, uh, you know, by history itself. Um, we can think of many times in which Protestants and Catholics 
um, have been able to coexist or and Hindus and Muslims and, and so on and so forth. So the question then really is why at this time do Hindus and Muslims in, in, in South Asia really turn against each other in a, in a very new way on a very new scale? Um, there's a massive rebellion against British rule in 1857 and you know a similar situation of panic and political transition and you don't at that time see this kind of tension between these communities. So something has changed between 1857 and 1947. And the argument I make, and many others have also made, is that the British really, um, after that rebellion, they're, they're, really, they're really concerned about Hindus and Muslims being united and having that joint, the potential to unite as a joint bloc against British rule once again. And they work very hard to sort of divide and rule. That's the simplest way to put it. And so distinctions of not just religion, but also um, caste and um, you know language and all any kind of distinction that can be built into um, British governance in India is is built into it, so that um, political society and political organization in the subcontinent has to sort of evolve around those distinctions. So, if electorates are divided by religion, you know, there's a Muslim electorate under the British for local elections, and then there's a separate Hindu electorate then any Hindu who wants to run has to have a political party that's for Hindus, right? So it just becomes built into kind of political culture um, from the, the colonial era. And, um, and when, when a lot of um, people in South Asia see the way nationalism is, um, the kind of destructive power of nationalism in World War I, some of them are also trying to think creatively outside the box of the nation state and coming up with different ideas about how to organize a post-colonial society. And some are thinking about um, Islam as a possible, uh, you know, um, um, way of imagining a polity. Um, so the poet philosopher Iqbal comes up in the book as someone who is considered typically the father of the idea of Pakistan, but he was really trying to think of a Muslim India within India uh, and a way of, of sort of thinking of a federal structure or something that's not based on the idea of just a nation state, um, because World War One has shown how how dangerous that could be. But then some, you know, some of these creative ideas get get co-opted in in a different way by people with other kinds of agendas. And from the British point of view, um, it was actually better to, in some sense, to have two pieces of South Asia in the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth is sort of an incubus um, or an umbrella that keeps them getting along and sort of that paternalistic, um, uh, an excuse for a continued paternalistic British presence um, to, to persist, you know, in some sense. And so they didn't particularly mind uh, there being a, a partition. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I detail the way that that decision um, winds up happening and um, how contingent it was. And um, it, it, it was not, um, you know, something that had to happen. And it's not like there were not other ways for history to have unfolded in this in the subcontinent. I think it's really helpful to, I hope it's helpful to, to kind of recognize that and also to understand that there isn't this sort of necessary eternal hatred between Hindus and Muslims um, and that there have been many times in which different in different parts of South Asia, those communities have, have not just gotten along, but have um, um, helped each other flourish, you know, in new ways. 
Now, your conclusory chapter opens with a survey of how anti-colonial thinkers recognized history's role in imperialism and sought to subvert it through their own engagement with the historical discipline. And this would include both European and um, uh, scholars from colonized places. Yeah. So as I said, there was always dissent against this Enlightenment idea of history as progress and great men being the, the key players of that. And we talked a little bit already about the romantics. And then I mentioned there was this, you know, there, there's continual resistance against British rule. And, and you can see a sort of um, intellectual um, um, intellectual legacies from those rebellions, right? Where alternative ideas of history and um, of and alternative understandings of the quality of British civilization are articulated. And, um, and you, especially as you get into the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you have anti-colonial thinkers very explicitly challenging that idea that the British are the handmaidens of history and that history is about progress. So most famously, I suppose you could talk about someone like uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who, who said, why should we sacrifice the present for some idea of future vindication? Like, why do we think we don't have an obligation to behave ethically in the present? Because um, that, will, that will not serve history. He says, you know, the practice of nonviolence is all about being ethically accountable in the present. Right and 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 finding freedom right now in the present, not at the end of some historical process that has yet to unfold. So there's a there's a presentism to that, or an anti-historical quality to that, that I think really resonated at the time. And 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 it's not just uh, Gandhi who thinks that way. I mean, that in the book I talk about other thinkers. I mentioned Iqbal already. There's also British thinkers like this. I mean, I didn't mention him in the book, but Herbert Butterfield is someone who in the 1930s also is a historian, devoutly Christian thinker, who, who says, you know, uh, it's not the job of, you know, uh, history is not about progress. This is a, you know, he's the one who does it, the Whig interpretation of history. He says this is not what history is about and that we are accountable in the present and the purpose of history is not, you know, progress that's going to come in the future. It's it's what we're doing with ourselves as we're moving through history, you know. Um, and uh, I talk about Edward Thompson, the father of E.P. Thompson, who was a missionary in India and who quit his job as a missionary because of this anti-colonial awakening he experiences again after World War One. And he's friends with Gandhi and Tagore and Iqbal and all these thinkers. And he too, um, he he actually uh, decides to to become an historian. And to use history in a different way, in a redemptive way. To so he writes a book that's a new a new history of the Indian Rebellion of 1857 that um, takes the Indians' point of view and 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 really understands the rebellion as an entirely rational, justified response to oppressive British rule and not this diabolical, fanatical, crazy event um, that the British had until then understood it to be. And I think that idea that attempt at writing. History from below, that's how we describe it now, um, really influenced uh, his son, E.P. Thompson, who decided to write British social history from below, um, famously in the, in the early 60s. 
Um, and so the last chapter of the book really describes the kind of legacy of this anti-colonial thought, how it changed the ethical purpose of history and the way um, historians today think about the um, the purpose of writing history and who we write about and whether we understand it as progress or not. Um, and it also talks about how the stickiness of kind of more popular understandings of liberalism and the, you know, and, and great men and, and those sort of uh, ideas about, um, about history. So that's where yeah. it leaves us. Uh-huh. And, and one area where there's considerable stickiness is as, as you just alluded to, right. Historians have, have for the most part, um, discarded the kind of the, the idea of progress as a structuring apparatus to their work. But as you document the specter of, you know, in, in scare quotes, development is a legacy of liberal imperialism that still really haunts the historical and political imagination. Yes, absolutely. And that idea is sort of central to the social sciences. So if historians don't really think, um, I shouldn't say, and it's not all historians, it's a lot of academic historians don't think in terms of progress, but economists do and political scientists do. Um, and I think a lot of um, not non-academic historians, more popular historians, or if you look at other arenas in which we produce history, like TV shows and movies, I mean, there's, there, are, there is a sticky idea of progress and great men. Um, so, how, so how do academic historians sort of, um, you know, uh, make themselves heard in that broader arena and, and help shift um, kind of popular understandings of the purpose of history? That's, that's I think, where we're at. Yeah, and I guess we can we can basically close on that very question. Um, if if the book were to be cast in a more prescriptive light, what uh, how would you describe it? Um, as in, sort of what what do you hope that this rethinking of both the project of empire and the complicity, um, but also the liberatory per, um, um, potential of history? in that project could be? What can we gain from considering this uh, more fully? Yeah, well, I hope that um, just, you know, people becoming more aware of histories and historical disciplines, complicity in the story of empire. Um, I, I, I would like people to just be more aware of that. And then I think that would make us more reflective about what, what public role we want to have, right, as historians today. Um, and I think, you know, what happened from the 1950s on is that especially um, historians took the position of being critics of power much more than the abettors of power. So instead of the prime minister, Winston Churchill, who was a historian and prime minister, you, you want you want to be more like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, like Edward Thompson, you know, um, a critic of 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 power, um, truth-telling against the government, informing the public, so to empower them in criticizing uh, and exercising their democratic check on governments. And um, and I think, um, you know, making um, some, you know, these conversations that we're having on um, memorial, memorialization, reparation, statues, I mean, this is one area in which historians today, I think, can be really, really helpful and help um, the wider public understand the way the past has really made our present. It's it's present in the present, and that by 
reckoning with that past more productively today in our present, um, we can change uh, not only the present, but make new kinds of futures possible too. Um, we're not just stuck on the same trajectory forever uh, if, we, if we make use of the past in a different way. And I think those conversations are emerging right now because there's been such a long um, silent, sort of silencing of criticism in recent decades, particularly because of the Cold War and then the War on Terror, um, a long silencing of criticism of, of empire, a lot of amnesia about European empire and American empire. And, and the legacies of that are, are still there and so strong that, um, that it's sort of, that's sort of forcing these conversations to come out. And, and, and whatever happens with the conversations, I think the conversations are an end in themselves. It doesn't, you know, maybe whatever comes out of them, I think the, the productive nature of them, of them is just, is that they happen, you know, and that we continue to have these discussions about the past and the way they, they shape, they're shaping our present. So, I mean, that would be sort of my way of saying, let's not be instrumental, you know, and hope that there's future vindication of these conversations. It doesn't matter, right? Um, they, they matter now and in, in the, what they're doing to our, our minds um, and our thinking and our culture and, uh, right now. Well, the book is called Time's Monster. It is an absolute must read. I encourage everyone to get a copy. Um, Priya, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, John, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you.